Hi, I'm Marlon Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland. And today I have something a little bit different for you guys, um, which is to say that a couple of days ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, um, there was sort of a discussion on um, Jason Connerly's podcast, the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, about... Um, different versions of D&D, especially in AD&D with regard to things like helmets and stuff. And I ended up calling in to talk basically about how I think that the helmet rules, excuse me, in 2E are um, not very good. Excuse me. And to be fair, I ended up, the, the helmet rules that I was talking about are actually not in the player's handbook for 2E. They come from an issue of Dragon Magazine that basically said, as far as I can tell, hey, these are the helmet rules that we think you should play with, but we didn't have space for them in the book. So, you know, you can make of that what you will. They are presented in a an OSR um book called for golden glory which attempts to take kind of all of the material of 2e over the course of its lifespan and sort of create something that is uh um usable or rather not not necessarily all the material over the course of its lifespan but all of the material especially stuff that exists like in in issues of dragon magazine and things like that to try to create sort of a, a core rules for 2e that uses all of the stuff that they decided that the designer sort of intended to be used, but isn't necessarily in the book and also change the presentation of a lot of the stuff to make it easier to use and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, that's where I encountered these helmet rules. Anyway, um, a couple of other people also called in later uh, with sort of similar comments. And um, today there was a, an episode published, Jason published an episode that is titled, um, let me find it real quick. Bonus, Minion defends AD&D 2E. And most of the episode, aside from sort of a brief introduction by Jason, is Minion, or uh, Rob, talking about kind of a defense of AD&D 2nd Edition. Um, I will just come out and say that while I think some of the pieces of kind of defense for AD&D 2E are fair, I think a lot of what Minion talks about is not a very good defense of AD&D 2E, especially from the perspective of AD&D 2E as its own game, rather than 2E as just sort of an evolution of 1E where you can pick up the new books and play with all of the old stuff too. Um, which, to be fair... Uh, Minion or Rob starts off by talking about how he thinks that a lot of the criticism of 2E comes from basically 1E players. And so his kind of perspective is sort of defending 2E from, from that direction. And I think it is, it is fair to, to defend it from that direction, but that there's a number of things that he kind of tosses out as defensive 2E that I don't think are... Um, very good defenses of 2E, even from that perspective and more generally from the perspective of 2E as kind of a game in itself. Um, anyway, so I went through and listened to the episode a couple of times and sort of put together my kind of response to all that, which is a lot longer. Um, and originally I was going to send Jason those files and then I thought, well, how about instead I just put them up on here? So this is going to be um, basically... 40 to 50 minutes of me talking about kind of what I think is is uh, wrong or unfair or incorrect or misrepresentative or however you want to put it. Basically, the stuff that Minion says in defense of 2E that I don't really agree with. Um, and that's going to be the whole episode. Basically, 50 minutes of uh, issues with 2E, AD&D 2E. So um, if you're not interested in that, feel free to skip this episode um, because there's nothing wrong with that. You're welcome to skip whatever. Um, but if you are, hopefully you get something out of this discussion. So, uh, yeah, let's get into it. All right. This is a, uh, a sort of series of call-ins, although I'm recording them on uh, Anchor, on kind of my Anchor recording so that I can go longer than a minute and not 
try to kind of keep everything um, connected. Um, but anyway, um, that are a response to Minion's, excuse me, defenses of AD&D 2nd Edition. I'm going to sort of go, excuse me, go through a lot of what he says um, over the course of um, his defense of AD&D 2E. So to start with, he, he starts off by talking about the armor and the, the kind of armor response and the way that some of the armor stuff is, uh, uh, in my opinion, kind of silly or bonkers. And that, you know, there's some important things to keep in mind. One of the ideas being that some of the armor listed on the table is essentially a different um, period of armor um technology if that makes sense so like bronze plate is used as an example bronze plate in 2e costs 400 gold pieces and weighs 45 pounds um and so there's the discussion of bronze plate mail um that apparently in the dmg it talks about the idea that this is sort of from a different period now i will present the description in the um player's handbook to you so that you guys can think about uh, how kind of fair this discussion is. So bronze plate mail. This is a plate mail armor, a combination of metal plates, chain mail or brigandine, leather and padding made of softer bronze. It is easier and cheaper to make than steel armor, but it does not protect as well. A large breastplate and other metal plates cover areas of the body, but other materials must protect the joints and movable parts of the body. It is not the full plate armor of the heavy knight of the late Middle Ages and Renaissance. That's from page 75 of the original printing, and I don't have the PDF of the revised printing up. The, the point that I'm getting at is that, at least in the player-facing description, there's no necessary indication that this is uh, a different period of armor technology, if that makes sense. Um, bronze plate mail is not necessarily presented as something that is... Uh, at least in the in the player's handbook, is not presented as something that like is the technology, the armor technology of like the classical world compared to the um, the the sort of medieval world. And in particular, this gets at um, what I was sort of getting at, which is that bronze plate mail costs four hundred GP and weighs forty five pounds. Bronze plate mail. Um, gives you an AC rating of four by default, this descending armor class. The other armors that give you an AC rating of four are splint mail and banded mail, as well as having chain mail plus a shield. So banded mail costs 200 gold pieces and weighs 35 pounds. Splint mail costs 80 gold pieces and weighs 40 pounds. Which is to get at the idea that if these other types of armor are accessible to the characters, there's, in my opinion, like fundamentally no reason to choose for a character to choose to wear bronze plate mail unless that is the technology that is uh, available, right? If they have access to banded mail and splint mail, why would they choose to wear bronze plate mail? Um which is my point that it depends very much on kind of what's available to the characters and that at least from what the player can see when they're building their character, they don't have any indication of um, the idea that this is fundamentally a different um, periods technology or anything like that, especially in the description of metal plates, chain mail, or brigandine. Chain mail is a sort of Iron Age invention, but brigandine uh, specifically refers to a, an armor technology from the, the medieval period. As far as we know, there was not um, classical area era brigandine, at least as far as I know, um, which kind of gets into uh, back to a lot of my points. And th this is Essentially, there's this stuff in here that doesn't make a whole lot of kind of game sense, independent of whether it's any realistic, right? 
bronze plate mail, like plate mail made out of bronze, probably wouldn't be nearly as effective as plate mail made out of steel. Now, of course, when you get into uh, historical technologies, one of the interesting things is that um, certainly early on in the Iron Age, bronze was uh, cheaper to make than steel armor. But after a certain point, iron-based uh, armor and weapons are a lot cheaper to make because of the fact that they don't require any smelting, that um, you can essentially just use raw iron of a certain quality and process it to make steel, whereas with bronze, you have to do the, the smelting of copper and tin to make bronze. And that the result is that not only is bronze softer than iron or steel, but it is also more expensive than iron or steel, which I think is kind of a an interesting point to make when you talk about it is easier and cheaper to make than steel armor in the description of bronze plate mail. And I'll add that there is no other armor on the armor list in AD&D 2e that specifies what material that it's made out of in terms of bronze versus steel, right? So you have hide and leather and padded armor, hide and leather and padded all being um, armor that's made out of, you know, soft materials or softer materials than iron. But everything else, I mean, you could make the case that the shields could be made out of different materials, but every other kind of true armor, right? Banded mail, brigandine, chain mail, field plate, full plate, um, plate mail, ring mail, scale mail is essentially a different way to use metal to defend yourself without any depiction of bronzeness, which is getting into the kind of this is not necessarily uh, an objective criticism of AD&D 2E in the sense that AD&D 2E is bad for including bronze plate mail, but I think it speaks to the um, unusual designed decisions that are made with regard to AD&D 2E that are not... Um, not easy to defend or that I don't think there's necessarily a great defense for them. That for instance, if you were a, uh, if you wanted to play 2E in a um, like bronze age situation, basically the only piece of armor that you have that's metal armor that the players could use is this bronze plate mail. Right, especially if you're playing before the invention of chainmail, which is an Iron Age invention, which sort of gets into my point about like there's a lot of presentation about well you can do sort of whatever you want with this system, but that it's not nearly kind of actually there, especially compared to later systems where there's a sort of more um, consistent underlying design philosophy that allows the DM to make their own stuff that will be um, consistent with the material that already exists, right? Especially, you know, if you're talking about like, you know, later versions of um, Dungeons and Dragons where, for instance, the armor cost and weight and protectiveness is essentially a formula, right? That especially in a lot of later versions, it's basically just a formula that you can plug in, okay, how much protection do you want and what does that end up costing and things like that, which is not necessarily as flavorful, but does make it really easy for the game master to tinker and to create material that will fit the other material that exists in the game, which I think is a, a sort of important distinction between these eras of games. Um, so anyway, that's sort of the, that's going to be the end of the first set of comments on Minion's defense of 2E. All right, so we're on to the second part, which is Minion specifically talking about full plate. Um, so one of the things, and this is a, a sort of disagreement um, between um, the way that I like to talk about this sort of stuff versus the way that some people like to talk about this stuff, which is to say that one of the things he talks about is the idea of you could go to Windsor Castle and see the like the armor that was made for Henry VIII and that it's quite heavy. Well, you don't have to resort to quite heavy. You can actually just, you know, look up how much it actually weighs, which is to say that most suits of full plate, including a helmet and 
whatever kind of gear might be worn underneath in order to, you know, padding or um, there's a specific term that I can't remember for basically a special, a special type of gambeson that has um, chain mail um, cutouts, essentially sections that are in chain mail versus padding most of the other places that's designed to like protect your underarms and stuff. And a lot of times it does weigh a fair bit. That is true, but it doesn't weigh nearly as much as what is in the AD&D 2E player's handbook, which is to say that most suits of full plate that we have today, including all of the other material that would be necessary for wearing it, like helmet um, and padding and all that sort of stuff underneath, max out at about 55 to 60 pounds, and most of them are lighter than that. Part of the problem has to do with the idea that you're talking about kind of different technologies and different styles of armor from different periods that are sort of wrapped up together, which is to say that there are um, different things that people mean when they say full plate, partly based on the period that you're talking about, that there are, especially by um, the sort of later periods, you get into um, armor that is really kind of um, hugely overwrought, especially with like tournament jousting armor that is basically just designed for charging at another guy and smacking him with a lance and isn't really kind of battlefield armor. And a lot of that stuff is legitimately really heavy, right? You're talking about this kind of, you know, super, super large plates that are particularly sculpted or shaped in order to be really useful for jousting. But when you're talking about battlefield armor, armor that was used on the battlefield, a lot of it isn't nearly as heavy as what's in the 2E rulebook, which is uh, the point that I'm getting at is that we don't have to just say, well, it's fairly heavy. We can talk specifically about how heavy it was. And this is sort of another point is that the weight of the armor, according to 2E, depending on your interpretation of what it means to have a separate weight listing for listing for helmets, which is to say that we're going to get into the, the helmet rules um, that I was referencing. But depending on your interpretation from the core book, it may or may not actually include the helmet in which case full plate would be 80 pounds because the best helmet you can get is a great helm, which is another 10 pounds, which when you compare that to a real suit of full plate that weighs about 55 pounds with the helmet included, that's a pretty substantial difference, especially when the encumbrance rules are so closely tied to that cutoff point. Um, and that's the the sort of other point that I'm getting at, which is to say that um, another consideration about plate armor is that plate armor was uh, distributed, right? Wearing 55 pounds of metal armor as plate is different than having that armor in a backpack just on your back. Um because of the way that that weight is distributed across the body. And this is not necessarily something that a game needs to concern itself with, but I think is an important point about the kind of perception of armor, which is to say that even if armor is relatively heavy, because of the way that it is distributed, it's often less encumbering in the sense of making it harder to, to move or act in than similar amounts of weight that are not distributed. And this gets into the idea of like, you know, there's, and you can go on YouTube and find footage of guys in full plate armor, not like, you know, the, the sort of late, late, late jousting armor, but essentially the, the sort of, you know, field armor, the armor that characters would use in the field that's full plate, um, which is kind of an interesting, there's a distinction made between field plate and full plate. And there's, um, it's kind of complicated as to what the distinction means that I think the, the book sort of oversimplifies it for the sake of gameplay stuff. But anyway, the point that we're getting at, that, that I'm getting at, is that you can just go on YouTube and find videos of people, you know, running around in full plate armor, right? It's not so heavy that you can't operate in it, which is the point of 
my discussion about encumbrance because in the encumbrance rules that are in 2E, the, the specific encumbrance rules, which admittedly is an optional rule, so you don't have to play with it, um, the weight of plate armor is enough that almost any character up until you get to like 16 strength is going to have their movement rate reduced without other things reduced. In other words, and, and the movement rate reduction does not specifically apply to like one form of movement rate or another, right? It's not like, you know, your walking speed is the same, but you can't run as fast or anything like that. This is just a general reduction to movement rate. Anyway, um, what I'm getting at is that this does not hold up with our knowledge of how plate armor actually works, which is to say that you, you know, sure you might have, and, and particularly, I think one of the big things if for me is that the, because there's no distinction made between like walking and running speeds and things like that, this creates some really, in my opinion, unintended game effects, um, or I suspect they were unintended because I can't imagine that these were intended um, game effects with regard to armor and encumbrance, which is to say that a character that needs to move in tactical combat, like a melee fighter, will be punished a lot more severely for being lightly encumbered because they have the reduced movement rate than a character who does not need to move in um, tactical combat, like, say, an archer or a wizard. And that the result, and I know this because I played a whole bunch of AD&D 2E recently. We got to, I played at least uh, 100 sessions or so and got to, like, 8th level. And the result of this is that what the canny players will do is that uh, shorter races, that is like dwarves and halflings and gnomes, have a, a pre-existing penalty to their movement speed just flat out. Um, in the core book, it's a little more significant than it is in some of the um, optional rules presented in some of the later books and Dragon Magazine, um, which we can get into the discussion about how kind of valid those are. But anyway, at least in the core book, dwarves and halflings and gnomes move half as fast as elves and humans. Um, so if you want to play, say, a melee-based dwarf, you really cannot afford a whole lot of movement penalties to the character based on um, things like encumbrance because that's going to be a pretty significant issue to your ability to get into combat and, you know, smack things with the sword. Whereas the wizard, who doesn't need to move nearly as much in combat, especially a human wizard who already has a significantly higher movement rate, can't afford those things. And the result is that on, like, say, overland journeys, if you're doing overland journeys, um, overland travel with random encounters, because of the way that these rules interact, the optimal play for the characters will generally be for the dwarf fighter to carry as little as possible as they can except for their core gear, that they're going to wear their armor and carry their weapon and probably not have much room for anything else on top of that unless you're using the magic item weight rules which we'll get into uh in a minute but that basically the the dwarven fighter is going to carry almost nothing else so that they can maintain their speed because in overland journeys you know, the party is moving at the rate of the slowest character, which is to say that if the dwarf gets encumbered, everybody is going to slow down even more. But if the wizard, who is already, who is, you know, walking twice as fast as the dwarf walks, gets encumbered, then that's not a problem for the party. And the result is that the fighters basically carry as little gear as they can afford to carry, and all of the characters who aren't needing to prioritize tall characters who don't need to prioritize movement end up carrying all of the extra shit and thus you have the wizard carrying a backpack full of all of the extra crap that the party needs but that 
the party doesn't necessarily need right away accessible and the fighters who have higher strengths are walking around with as little gear as they can stand to carry so that they can be mobile in combat. Now, depending on your view, I suppose this is not necessarily like objectively bad, right? If you want to play a game where the wizards carry all of the extra crap, that's fine, right? There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. I just think it's really silly and also pretty definitely not an intended consequence of these rules that it seems to me that that's really not what the goal of these rules is, but it is essentially the expression of how canny players will interact with these rules. Um, but then you get, I told, I said I would talk about magical armor and encumbrance, which is to say that magical, there's a special rule that is on page 79 of the original printing. And again, I don't have the revised printing open, the PDF of the revised printing open, so I don't know which page it's on, but it says magical armor and encumbrance which is one of the special properties of magical armor is its effect on encumbrance. Although magical armor appears to weigh as much as normal armor, the weight of magical armor applies only towards the weight limit of the character. It does not apply when determining the effects of encumbrance on movement and combat. In essence, the armor appears to weigh as much as normal armor, but does not restrict or hamper the character. Which means that as soon because the armor is likely to be far and away the most kind of weight expensive element for characters that wear armor, right? If we're talking about, you know, 60 or 70 pounds for field plate or full plate, but even for a lot of the lighter armors, you know, chain mail is what, 35 pounds? Banded mail is 40, I think. I don't remember exactly. And it's on a different page. So I have to flip back to find it. Yeah, banded mail is 35 pounds, chain mail is 40 pounds, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there are definitely lighter armors, but a lot of the armor that the player characters are likely to end up using over the course of their adventuring career, especially once they're sort of at, like, the professional adventure tier, for lack of a better term, is going to be a significant amount of weight like that. So as soon as they find a magical version of that armor the encumbrance system is going to matter nearly as much because it's not providing any effect on their encumbrance if you're using this magical armor rule. And I think the result of that is that basically they've got this system that only really applies to low-level characters because if you're... if for instance, you're rolling random treasure and all of that sort of stuff. As soon as they find, you know, magical armor, and if you're playing with, uh, you know, gold and treasure for XP, which I think is an optional rule in the DMG, but I don't have the DMG open, so I don't know. Basically, what I'm saying is that I think the result of this is that they have this whole encumbrance system that, depending on your combination of rules, may not actually be much of a factor long-term in the game, and turn into something that the players can totally hand wave further down the road. And that's, in my opinion, a really weird um, position for game design, um, specifically because what you end up with is that, um, especially at higher levels, a lot of those concerns that the lower level characters had are just not really relevant. And some of that I think is is fine, um, but that what that means to me is that this, well, I suppose the way to put it is that the kind of idea of sort of experiencing like the difficulty of overland travel and, you know, trying to balance out the weight, you know, okay, well, if I need to take 10 days of rations, which I will add that there's a bunch of stuff in the 2e book that doesn't have weights at all, especially things like, for instance, rations. There is uh, no listed weight for dry rations in AD&D 2e. Tells you how much they cost. They cost 10 gold pieces for a week of dried rations. But if you want to know how much it weighs, you're going to have to use something else other than the player's handbook, which, again, I think there's a case to be made that it's not necessarily 
going to make it impossible to play with. It's just really kind of bonkers design, right? Why, why is there all of this stuff for, right? You can see why you wouldn't necessarily have the weight for things. And some of the things on this list actually have um, weights listed in the sense that, you know, a lot of it is in um, cost per pound, right? So like rice and raisins and nuts are all in a cost for a pound of that year. So if you wanted to buy, you know, a pound of raisins for two silver pieces, you basically know how much that is going to weigh. But dry rations are going to be used for player characters during adventuring. And it just says per week. Doesn't say how much they actually weigh, which is, uh, yeah, pretty silly in my opinion. And gets into the idea that, sure, I think 2E has enough in it to make it playable in a lot of ways. But I think that if you want to kind of use the various material pieces in 2E, you're going to find that you either, as the GM, need to come up with your own solutions for a lot of this stuff or use other books to supplement 2E, which is, a, I think, a, a real flaw against the the system of 2e in general whether or not 2e is is playable and possible to have fun with right sure you can definitely have fun with the core of this system but there's a lot of pieces in here that if you want to use them you're either going to have to do your own work or find other books that do that work for you and that's i think really a, a kind of um non-trivial issue with 2E as a system. And to be fair, it may well be that first edition has some of these, or many of these, problems too. I haven't looked at the, uh, you know, how much do rations weigh per week in first edition. So I don't know if that information is available. But what I'm getting at is that I don't think this is just a, a trivial thing that you can just sort of say, well, you know, 2E has some kind of weird design decisions that a lot of it has really to do with like the playability at the table, especially if you don't have all of those other books to use to fill out the um, missing stuff in 2E. And I'll get to another uh, another example of this, which is to say that um, I, I use the example of the fact that armor is essentially across two different charts, that on page 69 of the original printing and on page 75 are the two charts that you need to use, which is that you have one chart that says the cost and the weight of the different types of armor and another chart that tells you what AC you actually get for those different types of armor. Now, to be fair, the uh, armor table, the first armor table says, see page 75 for the armor class ratings of various armor types, which when you go to 75, that's where the armor class rating table is. Um, although there's no, um, there's no um, backtrack element like that. So when you go to page 75, there's no information that you can find the armor costs and weights on page 69, which I think is kind of a weird oversight. But specifically what I'm getting at is that the reasoning for this division seems to be based on the layout of the original printing, which is to say that the armor section occupies a sort of small column on the right side of page 69. And so it looks like they decided not to put the sort of base armor class of those different armors on the same page or in the same table because they didn't have that much room on the page to add that material. Well, when you open up the revised version, the uh, the later printing, the uh, I believe it's from 1995, what you will find is that the same division between armor and weapons applies, except that the layout distinction, the, the, the original layout has been redone. And so in the revised version of the player's handbook, the armor weight and cost section, the armor weight and cost table is on page 92, and the armor class ratings is on page 99. And what you will find is that both of those pages are, aside from these tables, just text. 
which is to say that there's no reason that no reason from the perspective of layout difficulties that they couldn't have just revised the tables in order to present the information on the same page or next to each other, right? The, the armor table's spot seems to be there because they want it to be next to the equipment list, but it's on the next page. There's really no reason why they couldn't have moved stuff around to improve the presentation. And my point is that I don't think this is really just a subjective issue with the layout, which Marion will go on to say that um, a lot of layout stuff is subjective. And I think it's true that a lot of layout stuff is subjective, that a lot of the times talking about advantages or disadvantages of certain layout decisions has to do with what the designer believes is the best way or uh, to present the information that is in the book to make it accessible and usable. But I think that there's very little case to be made that putting these two tables on different pages and, and I will add that in the revised version, it doesn't even tell you which page you go to to find the armor class rating. It just tells you pay table 46 and not what page table 46 is on. Which is just to say that I don't think this is just, you know, subjective differences between preferences in layout. I think this is pretty objectively a bad decision from the perspective of making the material of the book usable, especially usable at the table, right? Because of the way that this book is laid out, it is less usable at the table, less easy for a new player to see what these decisions mean. And it would be really easy to have made some of these changes to have made that material more usable. So I guess what I'm saying is I think that unless your subjective position on layout is that, you know, layout is totally cool if it's, you know, not designed for usability, then sure, it's a subjective difference. But aside from that, I think this is pretty much an objective issue with the layout of 2E. Um, because it's yeah, it's pretty. It to me is is really fundamentally less usable than, for example, there's a, another PDF called For Golden Glory, which is a two E retro clone of second edition, a, a retro clone of second edition that attempts to kind of consolidate, especially a lot of the optional rules that were in published in Dragon Magazine that did not make it into the core books. Um, because generally these were presented as, hey, this is sort of what we think is uh, the best way to play this game. But obviously you had to have Dragon Magazine to use that material. Um, and that's actually where the helmet AC penalty thing comes from. Um, but in their version, they just have the stuff all presented together, right? So you have a table and it says armor. Banded mail, cost 200 gold pieces, weight 35 pounds, AC 4, which is basically what I'm getting at is that if you look at For Golden Glory and don't think that this is a better way to lay out the information that's presented in the 2e book, um, I think that that is, is pretty silly and not really reflective of you know, any type of, you know, serious engagement with how the material is expected to be used. Anyway, so yeah, we're going to stop this section of the recording here and move on to the next. All right, so um, there are a, a couple of more things to add. Hopefully this won't go nearly as long as the uh, the first two comments. So the, the helmet rules um that i was referencing actually come from an issue of dragon magazine that i don't have um, according to a person on reddit they are from let's see if i can find the the reddit post uh, that they are 
from um, Dragon Magazine number 149, um, which uh, the reason that I saw them was because uh, For Golden Glory reprints them because For Golden Glory is an attempt to kind of um, make all of the different sort of rules, especially rules that were presented in things like Dragon Magazine that were sort of presented as, yeah, these are optional, but these are sort of how we imagine that people would play um, into one core rule book so that they didn't have to keep up with Dragon Magazine. So anyway, you'll have to decide whether or not that um, the those rules are, are relevant to the discussion. Um, but I will say that I think that the argument that while there's no rules for helmets in 2E at all is actually really fundamentally not in 2E's favor because what it means is that there's this material information about helmets in the equipment section that you just don't have any reason to engage with unless you're using some other rules, right? And sure, you could use like first editions rules for called shots against heads and things like that, which I believe are the inspiration for the called shot rules that are in the complete fighter's handbook for 2E. Um, but basically what I'm getting at is that like, sure, maybe the helmet, maybe not wearing a helmet isn't actually penalized in the core rules of 2e if you're just using the the three books but then you just have these helmets that nobody has to do anything with right you're just sort of wasting space in the book to present these helmets that why would a player ever choose to take a helmet um which i think gets into some of the more sort of general flaws with second edition which is to say that i think because it was expected to be kind of a, an addition upon first edition, that there's a lot of stuff that if you weren't, you know, playing first edition or don't have the first edition books or things like that, that just doesn't work very well or make a lot of sense in the book. That there's a, a general kind of like, yeah, we've, you know, redesigned a lot of this sort of core stuff from first edition, but that really if you are not coming from first edition to second edition you will probably in my opinion as somebody who did not learn first edition first you'll probably end up with a lot of kind of well why is this this way or why is this you know this and that it turns out that the reasons for that has to do with things like you know rules that were presented in first edition that didn't actually make it into the second edition books and therefore you, you know, you know, if you're going to use that, you kind of have to use the first edition stuff, which I think is um, in the sense of is second edition D&D a decline from first edition is a, a fair defense for it that second edition D&D is not necessarily a, a decline from first edition because you can use all your first edition stuff with second edition just fine. But in the sense of is second edition D&D on its own like you know a, a great game and all that sort of stuff i think it's you know there's a lot of stuff throughout the book especially in the player's handbook but also in the dmg and to some degree the monster manual less so the monster manual but mostly the player's handbook and the dmg there's just kind of really bonkers stuff that is not nearly as uh well designed or makes use of you know things like the expectation that you're going to be using first edition stuff that really hampers second edition DD as a product on its own um anyway um and then there's some other stuff that i will sort of point out which is i already talked about the layout but i think it bears repeating again that sure some of the layout stuff is subjective right there's a there's a uh, definitely a subjective quality to layout, but I think that presenting all layout decisions as subjective is really kind of misleading for some of these issues that are in the second edition books, which is to say that, you know, sure, there's a subjective quality to it, but really, if, if you are willing to eliminate if you're willing to say that, you know, the core goal of layout is to 
present the material in a way that is kind of you know most easy to to understand and to 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 interact with and all of that sort of stuff then i think it's a much harder to defend some of the layout decisions in 2e in particular now it may be that 1e has those same layout issues i don't know 1e nearly as well and so i i will add that it's entirely possible that those are just things that came from 1E that stuck with 2E. Um, but I don't think that's a very good defense for 2E as a game on its own, right? This is sort of what I'm getting at. Um, there's some other stuff, which is to say the discussion about kind of realism. Um, and I think it is totally fair to say that the game is not designed to um, reflect kind of realistic outcomes although i will add that that is not um essentially that that's sort of a um i think a bit of a flawed argument when you consider a lot of the other material that is um used that is developed or, or used over the life cycle of advanced dungeons and dragons in general that for instance you know like the wilderness survival guide and the dungeoneer survival guide are admittedly first edition DD products although they can totally be used with second edition DD. and to me the kind of core ethos of both of those books really has to do with kind of realistically how would these things work in a fantasy world now I actually think that both of those books are in a lot of ways bad because of the the specific stuff that they introduce and the way that they introduce specifically the way that they introduce a ton of complexity to the game most of which has little to no interaction from the players which is just to say that like there's a lot of you know hey, we can randomly roll all this sort of stuff or we can make the the modeling of a character climbing something a lot more complex, but the players have very little actual kind of input on um, those formulas and things like that. And then as a result, you just sort of end up with a much more complex way for the dungeon master to roll a random chance for the character to fail at doing something. Um, Anyway, and there's also a lot of kind of bonkers stuff in those books too. Um, but what I'm getting at specifically has to do with the idea that I think that um, I think that some of the defense of 2E is fair, which is to say that 2E represents a, a different philosophy around the game in a lot of ways than, for instance, 3rd and 4th and 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, which is totally true. I just think that in a lot of ways 2E has some uh, pretty serious issues with things like the presentation of that philosophy and in particular the kind of actual ex and also the actual execution of that philosophy because you end up with things like these you know helmet rules that appear in another uh, that appear in an issue of Dragon magazine and at least according to, um, the sources that I have access to not having that issue of Dragon Magazine, it's presented as, yeah, this is sort of how we expected these rules to be used, but, you know, you don't necessarily have to because they're not in the core book, um, which is to say that I think there's some some kind of issues with that. And, and more generally, I think that there's some kind of um, flawed elements of... 2e that go back to in many ways things that come from first edition but that are really um really pretty serious as i see it issues with the idea of role-playing rules as a structure that allows for making interesting decisions as a character is I guess what I would say um, which is to say for instance things like you know the movement speed rules so differentiating movement speed based on the character's uh, race or ancestry makes sense in a simulationist way and this gets into why I think that it's not fair to just say that um, that, you know, well, it's a fantasy game, so it's not designed to create realistic outcomes, because I think that there's not really a very good case to be made for why are 
there are these really strong differences between character movement speeds, other than the idea that, well, because dwarfs and halflings and gnomes are short, they have shorter legs. Although I will point out that the actual numbers don't make a whole lot of sense because if you roll a max height dwarf on the random height generation versus a minimum height elf on the random height generation, you end up with characters that are only like eight or 10 inches different in height. I don't remember what the actual numbers are. I did it at one point and then apparently lost that document where I calculated that out. So I can do it if anybody wants me to look at the actual numbers. But the point is that a max height dwarf and a minimum height elf are not very different in height, but the dwarf moves half as quickly as the elf on the basis of having short legs, which I think is pretty silly. Um, but that specifically, um, and, and specifically that it seems like it's designed to create a, um, you know, distinction between the races on the basis of, you know, physical differences between them, but that it's kind of a weird middle ground of semi-simulationist, but not actually considering any of these kind of other factors. Um, I sort of lost my train of thought. Where was I going with this? Um, I don't remember exactly. Anyway, the point being that um, I think that Tui has some pretty significant flaws with regard to these sorts of things, and that Helmets is just sort of one expression of these flaws, which is to say that, as far as I can tell, either you end up with rules for Helmets that, uh, according to the, that are what the designers designed that are really pretty punishing for characters that need to wear a helmet to be able to like fight in melee and stuff like that. Or you end up with basically no rules for helmets other than what's presented in the DMG, which is thieves can't listen at doors while wearing helmets, but there's no reason for anybody to wear a helmet. So why would you wear a helmet at all? So I don't know. I, what I'm getting at is that I think that some of Minion's defenses of 2E are fair, especially when you talk about the relationship between 2E and 1st edition. But I think some of them are um, not very good, especially when you consider kind of 2E not as just a reflection of uh, or a, an evolution of 1st edition, but as a game on its own, which is kind of my, my sort of conclusion to all of this.